Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For the past few weeks, our pastor Heath Bauer has been leading us through a series on worship. In today's episode, we take a look at the difference between the true worship of the three kings and the false worship that came from King Herod. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, We Three Kings. Chapter 2. As you are finding your way there, I just want to thank you kids for being so good here this morning already. This is our fifth Sunday when we have a, a month that has five Sundays. We bring our children up here to worship with us in the sanctuary and to uh, just worship together with all of God's people as one big family. So thank you guys for being here, being a part of our worship, and uh, being a part of our study of God's Word today. So this morning, we're going to talk about one of the songs that we sang, you know, We Three Kings, though the word king there is a bit of a a misnomer. It was assumed that they were three kings because of the gifts that they brought. Uh, They were actually wise men, Matthew 2 is going to say. They were magi from the Greek word that is used here in our text, magos. They are magi. These uh, These were not so much kings, but they were from the east. Okay, we sing about we three kings of Orient are. Orient, just as a Latin term, meaning uh, east. Uh, we here in the west would be considered occidental. We don't usually use that term, but we're, uh, we're from the west here. Occidental from the Latin meaning sunset or the west. So these guys are from the east, which if you're a Jew and you go east, that's more toward where the Babylonian empire and things are. Uh, and so who were these wise men? These wise men were a class of royal counselor, a high-ranking royal counselor. Uh, we are familiar with them because of Daniel. Remember, in the captivity, Israel, through sin and idolatry, was taken from their land. They were plunked down there in Babylon. And Daniel uh, was sort of regarded as one of their wise men, a, a soothsayer, someone who is able to communicate with God and interpret dreams, which is something that wise men were understood as being able to do, and Daniel becoming chief among them. And because he was chief among them, his, his own book and his, the writings from his God would be certainly possessed within the libraries of these magi from this region of the world. And this will be important later, understanding that these wise men had access to the Holy Scriptures. These wise men were also highly skilled. They were scholars, uh, they were writers, they were astrologers. They were people who studied the sky and they knew the star charts and and that was often very vital to their performing of their wise men deeds. And so they were familiar with every position of the star and the charts and what they should look like at, at what time of the year. So when a star would arise that doesn't belong, this is gonna be a very significant Uh, thing to draw their attention. It's going to show them that God is doing something. Uh, Also, as those who interpret dreams, I think it's interesting, God is meeting them where they are, and even in verse 12, we're going to see that he's going to communicate to them through a dream. He's just meeting these men where they were at, and in missions context, that's not altogether uncommon. You do hear a lot of stories that are unusual about ways that people have come to Christ, sometimes uh, even supernatural ways that people have gotten their attention alerted to Christ, and I think in some ways, that's what we see here in the book of Matthew chapter 2 with these wise men. God is using super 
supernatural means to get their attention. But I want you to see is, no matter how you are coming to Christ, our journey always ends in God's word. Okay, so whatever means God has used to draw your attention to him, whether that's suffering or difficulty or some supernatural means, it's always going to end that journey in God's word. And so these men, we have to understand where they're coming from. They're coming from the, the Babylonian region, uh, what is now the Parthian Empire. And so the, they would not be monotheists like we are, believing in one God. They would be Zoroastrians. And so these men are, if you will, they're pursuing of and seeking out Christ that they may worship him. This is the, the conversion of these men. Okay, these are the first Gentile converts to Jesus Christ here is these magi who are leaving behind Zoroastrianism and stuff. And uh, they're traveling to see Jesus. Uh, we don't know how many of them there were. We often assume three. Why? Because three gifts were offered. So we assume that there were three. Some people will go as far as trying to name them and all that. That would be to exceed scripture. We don't know how many there were. We certainly don't know their names for certain. Um, in fact, if we do look at what historians say, the Magi typically, when they did travel, would travel in groups of 12 or more, including their families as well. So this would have been a fairly significant sized group coming into town and would probably need to be to cause the distress that we're going to read in our text today. The, our text is going to say that the entire city of Jerusalem was very worked up and concerned that this band of Magi had arrived in town, something they probably wouldn't be quite as concerned if there was just you know two or three fellows uh, coming into town here. So a real question is, when did they arrive on scene? Isn't that the real question of the wise men? We're teaching them after Christmas for a good reason, because the wise men come after Christmas. Okay, the wise men, they, a lot of times when we go to set up our nativities, what are we doing here? I mean, it looks like Grand Central Station and people just pushing past each other. It looks like a circus. You know, you got Mary and Joseph and Jesus and you push them as close together in that little shed as you can because you've got wise men, you've got sheep, you've got one of every animal to put in there. You got the wise men and their camels and you're shoving everybody up into that little nativity set that we have. But if we want to be realistic and accurate, where should we put the wise men? Behind the couch. Okay, they weren't there that Christmas morning, okay? So, I mean, that's gonna present a problem, Mom. What do you do with the wise men now, now that you know what you know? They came uh, sometime after Jesus Christ was to be born. Uh, we know that when the Magi came that Joseph was still in Bethlehem, however. We don't know why he remained in Bethlehem for as long as he did. You know, you know perhaps it was because of uh, financial reasons. They had just made that journey there. It, it could be that they did, weren't ready yet to return to Nazareth where they were scorned scorned because of, you know, this pregnancy, and it didn't come from Joseph, and so for whatever reason, they are still in Bethlehem. I think the only reason that we can deduce biblically is that God is guiding their steps. God is leading them, he just because he knows that God is leading these wise men to them. He also knows that Mary and Joseph and Jesus are going to have to flee and escape this place because of the murder of the children, sorry kids, uh, that, that Herod is about to, uh, about to enact on this country here. I think it's interesting too that just God is leading Joseph all along the way. We have to see the hand of a sovereign God behind all things. He warns Joseph, don't put her away. He, he guides them clearly to here. He guides them to remain here. He's going to guide them to go to Egypt and God is going to provide for their journey as well. God is in the business of providing for his will. 
And so we do know that it wasn't on Christmas Day. There's several reasons why we believe that is true. First of all, you know, it's, it's understood by most that this star was in conjunction with the birth of this Christ child. And so you've got these magi, they've got to make this journey over there. They're not going to make the journey that they did overnight. Biblically speaking, we look at Matthew chapter 2 and we look at Luke chapter 2 and we compare these two stories. In Luke chapter 2 that we just looked at last week, Jesus was an infant, a brephos. It's a, a different term for this, this little baby. The Bible uses a different Greek term here, the same one used of Jesus uh, with children in Matthew 18 verse 2 when he is conversing with them and he is sitting down with them. And so the, this term the Bible uses is a child, not a baby, not an infant, uh, but a small child. And so when the wise men arrived, Jesus had already grown some. You know, and then we, um, we, we believe that Jesus was somewhere between one and two, partly because of the length of the journey that it took to get there, but also the fact that when we look at who did Herod kill? He didn't kill all infants, he killed all children two and under. So we believe that Jesus was probably somewhere between one and two years old by the time the wise men arrived, okay? Why did they come? We're gonna see in our text here in just a moment here that they're going to express that we have come to worship him. That's, that's the whole reason for their journey. They are leaving behind their old life. They're leaving behind their old Zoroastrian beliefs. They're leaving behind their families. They're leaving behind their homes. They're leaving behind uh, their positions. You, you would likely not remain a, a, a wise man and still worship Jesus Christ. So they're leaving all of this behind to worship this king who has been born, this God king. What's sad is you've got these people who grew up in paganism and they're going to make this incredible journey to find Jesus and they're going to lavish him with gifts and they're gonna worship him, but they're gonna bump into another fellow who is supposed to be religious. He's supposed to be a spiritual individual. He is, you know, like David was both a spiritual influence and a political ruler over Israel. You've got Herod who is the king over Judea and he should be a good spiritual, positive spiritual influence on his people, but he is not. Instead, he pretends to worship Jesus. He has no intention of really worshiping Jesus. And so you see, we're going to see compared and contrasted today, false worship and true worship. The true worship of these pagans coming to Christ and the false worship of this guy who just grew up around religion his whole life. So number one, we're gonna see here that true worship seeks Christ. It says in verse one, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. I want you to see this morning the lengths that these wise men go to to seek out Jesus Christ. It's like nothing's gonna stand in their way. They are overcoming obstacle after obstacle after obstacle just to get to Jesus because the worship of Jesus Christ was worth it that much to them. Now it says they came from the east. Like I said, if you're living in Israel, to the east is the old Babylonian area, the Parthian Empire. And we know how long it takes to travel from there to uh, to Israel because the Jews made that same journey sometime in Ezra, didn't they? And the Bible records that that journey would take, took them about, uh, about four months. And so these men, they've seen the star, they begin making preparation to worship this new king. They, make, they travel this four-month journey to see the king. They go and they, they 
find office with Herod. You know, they have a meeting with him. They are pursuing Jesus. They're trying to figure out where he is born that they might worship him. And so it's understood that this took probably at least a year to accomplish all of this. The reason I mention all of this is simply to show you the lengths that they made to make their journey with the express purpose of simply worshiping Jesus and offering him their gifts. Worship of Jesus was very important to these people. You know, and so, and so it is with our journey. God has all of us on a journey too to find Christ, doesn't he? You know, he's gonna use all kinds of different circumstances and means to us, whether supernatural or, or difficult circumstances, whatever it is that God uses to get our attention, God has every human on earth. We are all on a spiritual journey of some kind. The problem is that biblically speaking, most men are not seeking after God. In fact, Romans chapter three tells us that apart from the grace of God, None of us would seek after God. None seek after God. We have all gone our own way. We've all gone astray. Okay, that's the natural estate of man. Apart from God and his grace, friends, we're not seeking him. The fact that we are seeking him at all is an indication that the grace of God is at work in our life as we are pursuing him. And when the grace of God is at work in your life to pursue Jesus, there is nothing, there's no obstacle that will stand in your way to get to him. You will break down the doors of heaven to find Jesus. You will, you will break through every obstacle to make a priority to worship Jesus Christ. That's one of the evidences, by the way, that somebody is truly converted. It's not that you grew up in church. It's not that you knew the, know the right answers to the, to the gospel trivia question. It's, it's not that somebody, you walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, you went to camp, you threw a stick in the fire, somebody wrote your name in the flyleaf of a Bible, or that your mama promised you that as a kid you made a profession of faith. Those are not great evidences that you're a true child of God. What is? It's that relentless, continual pursuit of Jesus Christ, and it doesn't stop having found him. Having found Jesus, you continue to pursue him throughout your life. He becomes an overwhelming passion, a consuming fire in your heart and life, a good evidence that the Spirit of God is within you because what does the Spirit of God always do? Points you to Jesus Christ. You possess the Spirit of God, you're gonna be pursuing Jesus relentlessly like these guys did with their whole life. Compare the journey of the wise men, though, to, what, to the, the, the comparatively tepid journey of most Americans in pursuing God. Years ago, back in the early 2000s, everybody was reading a book by Rick Warren called The Purpose Driven Life. And say what you want about Rick Warren, I'm not here to get into the politics of, of, of Rick Warren, but I just something I'd remembered from his book and reading that as a young pastor in my 20s was that he had done some kind of survey or whatever and he discovered that most Americans aren't willing to travel more than three traffic lights to get to church. I don't know how, how much truth there is in that, I just have to take the man at his word, but most Americans, we're not willing to overcome very much to get to the worship of Jesus Christ. If anything gets in the way, church gets you know, pushed out of the way. The worship of Jesus gets pushed out. If, if, if this is going on, if this is happening, if I'm, <coughs> do I have a fever? No, but it's close enough. You know, and we, we find some kind of reason not to be in God's house. Friends, I would get you to, to just question, why is it that I, I look for other things to do other than the worship of God? For a believer, when we truly understand, we appraise who God is and what he has done for us, the grace of God within our heart is going to drive us to continue to pursue him. Not just found him, thank God I'm not going to hell, I'm gonna live my life my way. It's having found God, I want to dwell continually in his presence. And that's why for a believer, the greatest eternity we can imagine is heaven because we are continually in the presence of God. And for those who are truly converted on earth, that's the greatest longing of our heart, not to be away from God, but to be as close to him as possible until that day when we will never have to be uh, uh, separated from him ever again. 
I want you to see here, number two, that true worship reads the Bible to discover Christ. They want, we, we go through God's word like, if this points us to Jesus, friends, I'm going to dig in this book to find him. Well, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. To which you might be asking, how on earth does this have to do with searching the scriptures? Well, what may not be readily apparent here is that these statements that they made were motivated from and lifted from their study of and their apprehension of scriptural truths. Remember I said earlier that these men in that Parthian region would have had access to Daniel's writings. They had a copy of God's word at least up through Daniel. Okay, so they had at least a couple of scriptures that were motivating them to try to figure out who this Christ is and where he's at. What made them think that he had been born king of the Jews? What made them think that right now was the time to find the king of the Jews? Can I offer to you that if all they read was Daniel, they would know that the king of the Jews is gonna be born around this time of the year. In the book of Daniel, a lot of, we all like the first part of Daniel, don't we? We love reading about Daniel in the lion's den. All the kids, we love Daniel in the lion's den. We love reading about the children in the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar and the giant statue of gold and the, the singing and the, we love all those early stories. But you start getting midway through the book of Daniel, do you ever struggle through that part? Those of you who are gonna be reading through the Bible in a year with us this next year, you're gonna get through Daniel, you're gonna see what I'm talking about. You're gonna to get to Daniel 9 and you're gonna scratch your head, okay? Daniel 9 talks about one of the most, if not the most significant prophecy of the Old Testament called the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now we're not gonna go into great detail this morning, but I'm gonna summarize it for you. The 70 weeks of Daniel is such an incredible prophecy that somebody studying the book of Daniel by itself must conclude that God is the author of this book. How do you know that with all these religious scriptures that are out there in the world, how do you know that the Bible is the one that God wrote? Because it has his signature. There are things in the Bible that God puts in there that only God can know. And one of those things is the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy. It's a timeline. It's a timeline that God gives in the book of Daniel beginning with the decree of Cyrus in 457 BC. And, if you, and it gives you a, a chronology of events that are going to take place in, in Israel's future. And, it, and you can lead through all of these different events all the way up into the point where when you adjust for the ACBC and you adjust for the difference between the lunar and the solar calendars, you arrive at the precise year in which Jesus, uh, at the end of the, the 69 weeks, Jesus enters Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. You back up a few years, you've got Jesus' birth. Okay, and so you have the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy, which is this timeline from Daniel and their, their departure of the Babylonian captivity all the way to the time of Jesus. And so these guys know, having studied the book of Daniel probably far more than we have, they know the, the, the approximate time that Jesus is going to be born. And so they're looking for this king who is going to arise from Jerusalem, from, uh, from Israel. They didn't know the exact reason, but they knew, or the exact place, but they knew enough to begin to seek out for him, and they did. They, they took the information that they had, they began to seek Christ. I would argue that they also had access to another scripture found in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17. The Magi, especially being astrologers, expected to see some kind of confirming presence that this God King has been born. And they would read in Numbers 24, 17, a star shall come out of Jacob. Remember Jacob's name? Uh, he is also Israel. So a star is going to arise out of Jacob and a scepter, okay, it's just a, it's sort of just a, a metaphor for a king. A scepter shall arise out of Israel. 
And so these, these men believe that God is going to confirm the birth of this God king with some kind of supernatural phenomena. And what's interesting is God meets them where they are. He gives them this supernatural phenomenon. Now we all know that this star in reference from Numbers chapter 24 is actually referring to a human, uh, but they believed that, that the birth of that human was going to be confirmed by some great supernatural event, and it was. And so they begin to follow, uh, just they see the, the arrival of the star and they begin to pursue this Jesus from the information that they had. Okay, and so uh, what I want you to see though is that these men, even though God gave them this star, it started them on the journey, but God didn't give them the star the whole way through. God is gonna make these men walk by faith. A lot of times we have this belief that the star was there and it was from the time he was born and it was consistently there and just guided them the whole way through and they followed the star like a cosmic GPS coordinate all the way to the place where Jesus was born when in fact what we learn from the scriptures is that the star appeared and they knew and they knew that this was the time to be pursuing the Christ and then the star disappears that's why they are so excited later in our text that the star is going to reappear at this point and guide them to this child but in the meantime God is going to get their attention with this supernatural event and he's going to force them to walk by faith you're going to pursue Jesus with all that you have and all that you've got to go on is my word and I would argue that's what God has planned for each one of us we cannot live our life just off of supernatural events and, and expecting God to give us these divine coincidences or what appear to be in our life that he wants us to walk by faith through his word. And that's exactly what these men are going to do. Through God's word, they are going to follow by faith to find him. And, and that's the journey God gives, I've said already this morning, for each of us. Whatever it is that God used to get your attention, our journey to find Jesus will always end in his word. God has a way of getting God's word to any heart that is truly seeking him by faith through the grace of God. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so all true worship has its origin in the word of God. That's why God's word is always so prevalent in our worship services here. We're not just here to sing and get ourselves all frothy with excitement about God. We're here to contemplate who God is and allow any excitement that comes about from that to be a byproduct of our understanding of who God is and what he has done. So all true worship of God begins in God's word. Number three, we see here that we're gonna look here at false worship. We're gonna see Herod a little bit. False worship, he's just gonna gather information to try to control things. He's not interested. You're gonna see the antagonist of the story, Herod. He should be a spiritual person. He's probably regarded in some ways as a, uh, someone who should be in a position of spiritual authority in their life, but he's not. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, okay? The announcement of the birth of Christ caused some people to rejoice and caused some people to be troubled. God is still doing that today, isn't he? The announcement of Christ's birth and his death and his resurrection brings great joy to one group of people and another group of people will fight it with every fiber of their being. They're, they're unconverted. He heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem is says with him. This is not just him, but everybody, the entire city is talking about this encounter. And assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now we need to understand a few things about Herod. Herod was your, your stereotypical politician. He's a climber. And 
throughout history, he's been climbing on the backs of every rising star in Rome. He has high ambitions for his life. He's going somewhere. He's going to get places. And, and like some politicians, he's willing to compromise wherever it needs to compromise. And he's willing to step on whoever he needs to step on to get there. That's Herod. Until finally in 37 BC, he was made prefect of Judea. But Herod preferred another title, king of the Jews. Is anybody seeing a conflict here yet? We got this man whose preferred title is not prefect of Judea, but king of the Jews. And then all of a sudden you got these wise men coming in saying, hey, we've come here to find a guy who has been born king of the Jews. We have somebody who claims, has claims to your throne. Well, Herod isn't going to take that lightly. Herod, you have to know, is a man who fought to gain that power, and he is a man who fought very hard to retain that power. Herod <clears throat> was very paranoid about losing his power. In fact, once he finally gained this title, King of the Jews, he immediately, at his inauguration, invited all of his enemy families, the, the people who opposed him, into this one big party, supposedly as a show of peace. They arrived there, and he kills them all in one fell swoop. Gone. Okay, this is the kind of man we're working with here, a man who's willing to kill all kinds of people to keep his position. But it gets worse than that. Uh, a few years into his reign, he kills his wife. Okay, I won't tell you how brutally or violently, but it is not pretty. We have children here today. Uh, he killed his wife. He killed his sons. He killed his wife's brother, her grandfather, and her mother to prevent anybody from having any kind of claim to the throne whatsoever. He is going to remain king of the Jews no matter what it takes Okay, so wicked was this man, he even caught the attention of Caesar Augustus. Y'all remember him from last week, Octavian? Uh, Caesar, the august one, the holy one. He looked at Herod and in his wickedness, and Herod's wickedness even impressed a Roman emperor. And he is quoted as saying, it is better to be one of Herod's sows than one of Herod's sons. Now, when your wickedness catches the attention of a Roman emperor, you're wicked on a whole new level. And that's who we're dealing with here with Herod. And so now you got these wise men come in. Hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews. He's been born. We, we, we want to worship him. What do you think that whole court is doing right now? Everyone just enters a hushed silence. <gasps> Did he say what I think he said? What's going to happen next? I don't know. He's killed for far less. And so everybody's just terrified at disappointing this particular guy. And that's because this man is supposed to be a, a good king. He's not. He's supposed to be a, people, a king leading his people towards God, and he won't. By the way, this is when you know you're under the rule of a bully. Okay? Everybody is making decisions, not based upon what is obedient to God and what pleases God. Everybody is just making decisions based upon, well, you can't make that person mad. You don't know what that person's gonna do. Don't make this guy mad because he's gonna make it really hard or she will make it very hard for everybody. You know, and it, it happened in the Jewish times here in the country. It happens sometimes in churches. Can that happen in churches? Where sometimes religious bullies can take over a church and a church makes decisions no longer pursuing God and his, his purpose of the Great Commission and filling the whole earth with his glory. Now we simply make decisions in life going, shh, don't say this, it might upset that one person. Who knows what kind of retribution they're going to enact on us as a church. And so you've got these people who are living in terror and fear. That's when you know you're under the, the, the power of a bully. 
Israel is under the power of a bully right now, Herod. And everybody's just terrified. It says the entire city here of Jerusalem is just mortified that people are talking to the king of the Jews, asking where the one who is born king of the Jews is located. Okay, so then what does Herod do as a result of this? He begins to inquire. He's gonna gather information. I gotta stop this thing. And so he gathers information. It says that uh, he pulls together this emergency council and it says, and he asks them, where, where is the Christ gonna be born? Why is he so concerned about these details of where Christ is gonna be born? He would have you think that he wants to worship him. What does he really wanna do? You've read the end of the text, haven't you? I and mean, there's no spoilers here. Herod wants this Messiah dead. He has different purposes than what he communicates from his mouth. Okay, so he gathers these people, and the people told him this. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. Okay, there's nothing new here. Herod, you would have known these things had you gone to VBS as a kid, and you studied the Bible, and you learned these things. You should know what these prophets are saying. It's, it's, something, it's, it's prophecies we've had for hundreds and hundreds of years. And here's the prophecy, and they go to quote Micah 5.2. I'm impressed with the religious knowledge of these people that are advising Herod. They quote Micah 5.2, and they said, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We talked a little bit about Micah 5.2 last week. We, it's, we're talking about how he, he is from old and from ancient days. This is no just mere boy who is being born. This is God come in the flesh. Okay? His, his origins aren't from Christmas time, but from ancient past, from eternity past. This is God. And so these people are quoting this to him, and they, are, and they throw in there his intended purpose. He is to shepherd his people, Israel. They are longing for a shepherd king. Everybody loves a shepherd king, don't we? We love it when whoever is in power is looking out for you. They're protecting you. They are feeding you. They are comforting you. They are fighting the wolves. You know, remember FDR in the World War II times and people would line up, you know, when the fellow passed away because it, to many of them in this very difficult time of war, he was a shepherd to them. And this is what people were wishing for with Herod. Oh, that God would give us a king that would shepherd us. And they're thinking longingly back to the, shep the last true shepherd king, which was David. But now has come another one, also born in the city of David, who will shepherd his people. And so you can just hear the longing in their voice as they talk about this shepherd who will come and comfort them and protect them. Now, Herod appears to be spiritually interested initially. Hey, where's he going to be born? You know, and we'll read in the, our text today, you know, I would like to worship him as well. He appears spiritually interested. Is he truly spiritually interested? No, this man, he has no spiritual interests in the birth of this Christ child. He is appearing religiously interested so he can get what he wants. He has something other than God's will in mind. Number four, we're gonna see here that false worship, we're continuing to look at Herod here. False worship works in secret. Verse seven, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And so the Bible could have just said Herod summoned these men, but the Bible makes it a point to help us to identify the activities of this spiritual, political bully in Israel, and they want us to see that this man loves to work in secret. He summoned the wise men in secret. He had a conversation with them in secret. He is planning and plotting things in secret against the will of God simply to fulfill his own desires. We all know why he wants to know when this child has been born. 
okay? Because we've read verses 13 to 18. We know he wants to know when this child was born so that he can kill children up to an appropriate age and make sure he covers, you know, hedges his bets a little bit, make sure he gets them all. This is a truly, truly wicked man. He is pretending to worship God while intending to do harm. Pretending to worship while intending to do harm. And we can still find that today sometimes, can't we? People who pretend to worship, but they're intending to do harm because it is not God's will they're seeking, but their own. We've seen it before. We've seen it with the Pharisees. Those of you who have been here on Sunday nights when preaching through the book of John. And in the book of John, if nothing else, we're seeing the mighty, amazing power of Jesus Christ. And then you see this incredible uh, resistance from the Pharisees. And we just can't understand why they would oppose Jesus in the, as much as they do. The Pharisees, they always worked in secret, didn't they? We, we would read in uh, the book of John, we would read how they would uh, work in secret. They would gather counselors and send them out on their behalf, and they would try to confront Jesus. They would ask questions, not to really find the answer. They ask questions to Jesus because they're trying to trick him. They're trying to catch him in his words. And multiple times, these men sent out, if you will, hit squads. They're trying to kill Jesus before his time course he being God is able to get out of it until the time in which he voluntarily lays down his life but Jesus his death was not he was not a victim of intrigue he will lay down his life at the appropriate time but these men are trying to kill him and they work behind the scenes they're plotting with Judas will pay off money if you will if you will indicate you know who Jesus is and where he's at and when we can best take him they're plotting behind the scenes for Jesus own trial didn't they how did you get people to speak out against Jesus? Is it because they have evidence that Jesus was truly bad? No. They found other people willing to lie about Jesus. And they do all of this behind the scenes. In fact, even Jesus' own trial, was it an upfront trial? Was it done above board? If you've studied the trial of Jesus when he was tried, it was, it was all behind the scenes. It was a kangaroo court. It was, uh, done, it, was, it was done at night under the cover of darkness, trying to make sure that people don't see or notice all that they're doing because what they're doing won't stand up to the scrutiny of God's word. In fact, many historians looking at the trial of Jesus have determined that he broke, they broke at least 18 Mosaic laws in the trial of Jesus. Pharisees played dirty. They played behind the scenes. They were just trying to exert their will on earth. Weren't so much concerned about following God. They wanted people to follow them. Well, that's what Herod is doing here. He can't work in the light because his actions won't stand up to the scrutiny of God's word. And so he works in the darkness. You're going to find that God's children work in the light. Satan's children work in the dark. This is, this is no great secret. I mean, Jesus himself revealed that. Uh, even in his trial, he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and the temples where the Jews meet together. I have said nothing in secret. Jesus could do everything openly and publicly because he's like, search the scriptures, they testify of me. Jesus had no reason to have to do things in private and secretly. You do things in private and secretly because you have things that you're doing that are contrary to God's word. You don't want people lining up what you're doing and how you're living according to God's word. Even here with the, uh, with the Magi, were they working out in the open, in the light, or were they working in the darkness? They were working in the light, weren't they? In fact, they went all the way up to Herod's face himself and said, hey, we're in town. We want everybody to know we're here to find the king of the Jews that we might worship him. They're very forthcoming with their motivations and what they're about to do. They're working in the light because when we look at what they're doing in light of God's word, we can see that they are working in the light, that they're, what they're doing is correct. They are really here to worship. But what does Herod do? He works behind the scenes. He works in the darkness. 
He works in the shadows. Okay? That's always how the children of light and how the children of darkness work. Children of light, they work in the light. They work openly. They're very open about what they're, what they're going to do, what they intend to do. Children of the darkness, they love to work in the dark. They love not to have anybody know anything about them. Very secretive people. They talk behind the scenes. They love to gossip and backbite. God's children work in the light. Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus in John 3.20, he says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come unto the light, lest his work should be reproved. Wickedness loves the cover of darkness. You can't see what I'm doing. You can't really understand who I am. You don't know where I'm at. You don't know my intentions, my motivations. You can't scrutinize what I'm doing by the word of God. I'm doing this in secret. But whoever, Jesus says, does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And so if nothing else, we should be able to look at Herod and see very clearly that he is the antagonist of this story because he is one of those that, like the Pharisees and others of old, they work behind the scenes, plotting and conniving and, and trying to oppose the work of God here on earth. The Magi, they're working in the light. Number five, we see that false worship lies. Listen to how Herod is going to pretend to work with the wise men. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word. Why? What does he tell them? That I too may come and worship him. Is that a true statement? We know that's a bold-faced lie. But that's what, that's what people who work in the darkness do. They will smile to your face. They will shake your hand. And the next minute, they're, they're behind your back and they're stabbing you in the back. That's, that's one of the indicators of which team we're playing on. People who love you. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's someone who truly loves you. Matthew 7, they're gonna, they're gonna come to you and they're gonna confront you if sin is in your life, but they're gonna do it to your face, not behind your back. They'll come to your face and they'll talk to you and they're gonna pray with you. And that's, that's how children of light work. Children of darkness, they don't do that. They love the cover of darkness. And they will lie to your face just like Herod is doing here. Herod, we're going to discover, is ushering in a government that the Bible would describe as a beast. In the Bible, as a government, the Bible sees you as either a tree or a beast. A tree is something that gives animals shelter, it gives them protection, it provides them food, it provides them uh, cover from the rain and things. It's, it's a blessing. They, they see it as their job as a government to bless their people. And then there's a beast government to which the beasts of Revelation are compared. Okay, these beasts are, are in Daniel, and these beasts devour their people. They have no conscience. They're not driven by spiritually motivated things. An animal simply operates off of beastly instinct. I'm hungry, I'm gonna kill, and I'm gonna devour. And that's what Herod is. He is going to be operating not by the Spirit of God. He is gonna be unmoved by Scripture. Okay, you always wonder sometimes, these false teachers, how is it that we can be reading the same Bible and it doesn't affect them the way it affects me? It's because your heart is converted and theirs isn't. 1 Corinthians 2.14, what does it say? The natural man does not receive. He will not take in. He will not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him because they are spiritually discerned. They don't have the Spirit of God and they cannot understand or receive as truth the Word of God. And that's where Herod is. He can hear people quoting Scripture. His own people are quoting Herod's Scripture and it just like bounces off his hard heart. It's because he's unconverted. And he is just going to live in lies and he is going to devour his people. Well, number six, we see here that true worship is characterized by rejoicing. You know, when you do life God's way and when you worship God truly, when you're walking in the Spirit, how can you tell someone who's walking in the Spirit? You ever read Galatians 5? 
22, 23? How can you tell somebody who is converted and walking with God? There are fruit. There are evidences of the Spirit of God in you. Love and joy and peace. One of those evidences that you're walking with God is that you're a joyful person. Not that you're just always this Pollyanna happy person. I'm sure everything's gonna turn out good in the end. It's that there is this deep residing contentment and happiness and joy not that your, your temporary things have been satisfied, but that your eternal security with Jesus Christ has been satisfied. And so we see here that true worship is characterized by those who rejoice. It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest. This star has appeared again. In their pursuit of God, this, here is this star, and it is guiding them, and it says it came to rest over the place where the child was, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. So this star, we don't know much about this star. There's been a lot of conversation as to, was it a real star? Was it just a manifestation of God's glory? I would say that the Bible communicates that these men saw it as a real star, but it doesn't matter. All we do know is that this is a, a supernatural event. This is a outworking of God's power. Stars don't normally behave in this way. And so in this demonstration of God's glory, he used it to guide the Magi. And this, and <clears throat> excuse me, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy because uh, this thing has appeared to them and he's guiding their steps. And this is no rejoicing either. Rejoiced exceeding with great joy. If you study the scriptures, this is the most superlative statement of joy in all of the Bible. You won't find a greater statement of joy. What is it that's making these men so joyful? It's that their whole hope and reason for joy isn't from the satisfaction of temporary things. I got money, I got friends, I'm comfortable, my body's healthy. These aren't the things that are bringing them joy. What has caused this, them to rejoice exceedingly with great joy is the fact that the sum of their heart's desire is right here before them. All they truly want is to know God and to worship Jesus Christ. And having found that, that gives them great joy. I think it's interesting as we look here, the Magi are evidence that when we're searching for God, will you find him? The fact that you're searching for God at all in defiance of Romans chapter three is evidence that this grace of God is working in your heart, okay? When you find God, when you search for God, you will find him. Matthew 7, 8 says, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Our pursuit of God, our searching for God and finding meaning in Jesus Christ will always end in our being filled with him and being content in him, satisfied in him. It will produce the fruit of the spirit, joy within us, rejoice, rejoice exceeding with great joy. How can you tell those who are truly worshiping God day by day? Characteristically speaking, they're gonna be the people of the greatest joy. They're gonna be people who, despite difficult things going on in life, they're still able to have a hope-filled, optimistic, uh, faith-filled outlook on life. Even though maybe they have cancer and they seem to be enjoying their Christmas more than you. How? It's because they're, they're, the summation of their life's purpose and is, is to find Jesus Christ and having found them, they are able to rejoice exceeding with great joy. Number seven here, we see that true worship submits to Christ. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Now, I want you to remember who the Magi were. These were not insignificant people where they came from. These were some of the highest-ranking people of the land. At times, just underneath some of these Magi, like Daniel, just underneath the rank of the king himself. 
These were high-ranking, powerful, respected, wealthy people, especially given the gifts that they're giving. These powerful, respected, wise, educated, wealthy people, what do they do when they encounter Jesus? They fall down and they worship him. That's the natural response to man with God, is we lay down all that we are and we recognize our utter unworthiness before him and we begin to worship God. It was Spurgeon who once said, when you feel yourself to be utterly unworthy, you have hit the truth. These men recognized, despite the fact that earthly speaking, they were highly successful, highly educated, wealthy, powerful, everything you'd want for your kids, they have all this, and yet they lay it down and they fall down before Jesus Christ to worship him. They laid aside their position, their pride, their power. They did not retain their titles. They didn't just kind of nod their head at him. They, they prostrated themselves before this child because they recognized he's not simply a child, but he's God. You know, I think it's interesting that when we worship today, don't we do the same thing? When we come in here to church, do we retain our titles? Do we retain, do we exercise our power over church because we have more money? You know, I'm a big tither here in this church, therefore people should listen to me more than this person over here who's poor. You know, is, is that how we do church? You know, or I am very big in this community. I'm a mayor, I am a chief of this, or a, a head of that, or I'm a, uh, an executive in this big business. I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a this, I'm a that. Does that make a difference when you walk through these doors here at the church? I've lived here all my life and I can trace my lineage to Ashland, Kentucky for the last 300 years. Does that make a difference when we come in the door here at the church? Does that give you greater influence? Is there seniority in the church? There's not, is there? In fact, when we come together, the Bible makes it very clear in Galatians 3.28, we lay all of that aside when we come in the door. It says there, that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so when we come in here, like the wise men, as soon as we come before Jesus, it's just a bunch of God's children bowing down and worshiping him. And it doesn't matter where we came from, what our titles were, who we were, where we came from. As they say, the, foot, the, the ground around the cross is level. There's nobody that has any more instinctive advantage over another group of people. So you may come here and you're as poor as they come. You may come here and you're as wealthy as they come. You may come here and you're a man or you may come here and you're a woman. You may come here and you're a child or you're older. The ground around the cross is level. We all approach him. We, have, uh, uh, we equally abase ourselves before him and we worship him as our God, just as these wise men did. Last thing we see here, kids, and I promise you, this is the last point here and then we're gonna let you go home and eat, all right? You guys have done really good so far. Some of the husbands are crying because they're hungry or you're checking sports scores. Shouldn't do that in church. Number eight, true worship gives. True worship has always been accompanied by gifts, doesn't it? I mean, you even look back through the Old Testament prior to the Old Testament law, and we read here that even before the law, Abraham, he has all of these victories over this, this five king, nation kings, and you know he defeats them in battle. He has all of this this booty that he got from war, all of this bounty that he has received, and what's his first natural instinct? He goes to Melchizedek, who was the priest at the time, and he gives a tithe of all that he had. That predates the law. And so I'm not saying that there's a certain percentage that you have to give to please God. Don't hear me say that. But what I am saying is that anytime something good comes in our life, we give as a demonstration of that goodness. We've 
The worship of God has always been accompanied by giving. And this is not a message per se on giving, but understand that it is a message on worship. And all worship necessarily does include giving, doesn't it? If we are truly worshiping God, we will give to God because it's a recognition of his authority over us. Isn't that what the wise men are doing here? They are giving to him, so almost like a vassal nation does to their Lord, recognizing their, his lordship over their life, and they give willingly and voluntarily and sacrificially to Jesus Christ. I mean, look at the gifts that they give him, okay? The gifts that they give him, uh, gold. Obviously, we understand the value of gold. They give him frankincense, okay? It's a type of incense. It's, a, it's something that they would get from the, the resin of the bark of these trees, and they would harvest it from these trees. It was a very difficult process to harvest from these rare trees. It was highly fragrant, especially when burned. That's why it was used as an incense. They would burn it. But it was a highly valuable commodity. You could sell it for a lot of money. And then you had myrrh, another very valuable substance, this bitter resin that was harvested from trees and things that was valued for its ability to, in the embalming process, to preserve bodies when they passed away. Now, some people have gone to the extent of seeing prophetic imagery in all three of these gifts, and you know, perhaps there is some of that there, but the text doesn't go any further than to tell us right here simply that these gifts were valuable and expensive. These men are giving of their abundance and they are giving abundantly to him as an act of the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Because when we give gifts, doesn't it demonstrate to, to some degree the worthiness of that individual to us? Now, we give gifts to a lot of people. If, if you're anything like my wife, she wants to give gifts to like everybody, you know, postman. I'm like, I've never even met the guy, but she wants to like leave something in his box for him. Now, <clears throat> you may be a person who leaves gifts for certain people, but... Are you gonna spend the same amount of money on your postman that you did uh, your children? You gonna spend the same amount of money on your mechanic, on the gift you give him as you give your wife, men? You do that, you're gonna get in trouble, okay? So the, the gift that we give, even at Christmas time, demonstrates the importance of that person to us in our life. We tend to give more to our children, family, and, and close friends than we do just sort of acquaintance type people. And so here, in, in their giving to God himself, they are giving voluntarily, they are giving freely, they are giving sacrificially as an act of worship to him. What I want you to notice is what God is gonna do with this. We know how this story ends, don't we? Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they're here in Bethlehem, but eventually what's Herod gonna do? He's gonna issue a decree, and it's going to be a great slaughter of the young ones, two and under. What's God going to do? He warns Joseph to flee to Egypt during this time. Well, how is this young newlywed couple going to be able to just uproot, move to another country and live there until the day that Herod dies? Okay, how are they gonna provide for all this? Well, it's just interesting that God used the sacrificial giving of his people to provide for the, for the ministry of God in protecting the very life of Jesus and providing for Joseph and Mary right before they go on this journey. So we give sacrificially to God as an act of worship. What does God do with that money? We give to God through people and then God uses that money to accomplish his ministry through people here on earth. And so I've just, as we've been looking at true worship and false worship, we've compared and we've contrasted. We got the wise men over here. These, these pagans who are coming and are giving everything up to Jesus. And we got, this, we got this man, Herod, who grew up around religion his whole life. He is surrounded by religion. He grew up with religion, and he appears outwardly religious. But is he truly worshiping? He's not. What I want you to see here is we look at the story of the wise men, and we look at the story of Herod, we, we kind of put them together. 
I think we're intended to look at this and we're to even evaluate our own hearts. Am I truly a person seeking God and with a spirit to worship? Is my religious experience more akin to Herod where it's superficial, it's outward, it's about concerned about appearances, it's about enforcing my will upon the church and my will on God? Or is it more like the worship of the wise men where I abandon all that made me me behind and I just approach humbly and I bow down before the throne of Jesus. I have this relentless pursuit as I, as I seek to find him, as I seek to worship him, as I lay my offerings and my gifts down to him that we offer ourselves, we talked about in the first message, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual act of worship. Are you worshiping from the spirit, that which from arises from within, that your, your life response is just a response to the gospel that God has done in bringing new life to us through Jesus? Or is our religion just simply external? Is it mechanical? Is it on the outside? Is it just appearing to worship, concerned about appearances and enforcing our own will on things? Or is it about offering like, the, like these guys here, just offering up our gifts and offering up ourselves as a reasonable act of worship to him? I think that's a question we all need to look at today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that as we study your word, we can discover here, we, we, we realize that as we read the Bible, it's, even these things that aren't written to us are written for us, that these things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so, Father, we recognize here that you are describing the activities of the wise men and the activities of Herod. But Lord, I, I pray that we, as we look at this story, we're gonna see that we have far more in common with the wise men who are seeking Christ, who will overcome any obstacle to pursue him for the purpose of laying down their life to him, to bow down, to prostrate, to worship him, to, to give freely to him, to be more concerned about, about him and his glorification than simply our own lives and our glorification. Lord, if there's any here today who does not, who has not yet begun that journey of seeking Christ, of, of an acknowledgement that we're sinners and that because of that, God, you being a holy God must punish sin. God, maybe there's some here who haven't yet learned that even though you must punish sin, that you have provided a way to satisfy both your wrath against sin and your mercy for mankind in the person of Jesus Christ, sending him to earth here in the form of a baby who grew up and lived the life perfectly that we could not so that when he died on the cross, he died the death for each one of us, one man for all, that being found in him, we might have eternal life. God, I pray for that one who may be here today who does not know, have that certainty that they are born again. God, I pray that today, entering in this new year, that they would enter the new year with that confidence and that each one of us would offer ourselves up as these wise men did. It's an act of worship to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.